Hey everyone, Jonathan here. Just a quick note, we kind of assume a degree of familiarity with the films that we discuss on the show, so that means there may be spoilers. Now we definitely don't want to ruin these movies for you, so if that concerns you, this may be a good time to catch up on certain titles you've missed, and maybe see some things you wouldn't normally have made a point to see, and then you can come back and listen to the podcast. Just wanted to give you a fair warning. And with that out of the way, let's get on with the show. to the worst part of my favorite movie, the podcast that dares to suggest that just because we love something, that doesn't mean it's perfect. Thank you for listening. My name is Jonathan Foster. I'm your host. My co-host, Trip Von Weeks, unfortunately can't be with us here today. Not many people know this, but but Trip is a musician on the side, and this is this is very exciting. He's in Chicago right now, auditioning for Bud Grossman at the Gate of Horn. So best of luck, Trip. Fingers crossed. I know it's a big deal, and it's the whole thing. Uh, hopefully, you'll be back with us next time. But joining me on the show today is a great writer and journalist who, in August 2001, while still in college, launched a humble website called Oscar Central, and then spent the next two decades dominating award season coverage online and in print, eventually becoming Variety's awards coverage editor. He has since moved on to greener pastures in the film world, and I'm happy to be speaking with him today. Please welcome to the show, Chris Tapley. Thanks for being here, Tapley. Thank you. Thank you for that intro. That was awesome. Yeah, of course. Uh, now, we went to film school together. We both started in the fall of 1999, which was a great time for movies, a great time to start life as a new film student. Do you remember the producing class we had in which our professor kind of surrendered the class to the students, and we ended up talking about Fight Club and American Beauty for three hours? The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. I don't remember that specific day. That's interesting. So we, I mean, obviously I remember like the, the, the three Kings American beauty, uh, uh, double feature that a few of us went to, but fight club. Yeah. They showed it at the school a couple days early too. Second rule of fight club is you do not talk about fight club. They showed it at the school. And then you and I actually went to North point for the, also the Thursday night employee screening. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. Wow. I have a good memory. So whenever someone surprises me with a memory like that, I'm just like, whoa. But no, no, I, I mean, that, 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 that rings a bell that we, that, we, that we kind of all just started talking about. Uh, yeah, it's like a misplaced memory, but that's interesting. Yeah. Well, we didn't learn anything about producing that day, but I sometimes wonder if that's what happened with Fight Club and American Beauty, what kind of seismic impact did something like Pulp Fiction have on film students everywhere when it came out in 94? I can certainly imagine... There was a producing class in the fall of that year where the students obsessed about Pulp Fiction. But I would also hope that maybe they would also have shown a little love for the movie we're here to discuss today. So yeah. tell us, Chris, what film are we talking about today? Speed, Jan de Bont. Speed, or as Homer Simpson called it, the bus that couldn't slow down, or as Frank Costanza simply called it, the bus. Now, this is your favorite action movie. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, what else would be vying for a spot on that list? I was just thinking about that. Do people consider heat action? I don't think I do. That's one of those movies that was like dubiously on the uh, action shelf in a v in like blockbuster or something, you know. I mean, I'm such a child of that era, so I love. I mean, I love The Rock. Um, I love. I watched Air Force One the other day. That movie holds up. Literally, stuff surrounding the release of Speed would be in the mix for that for me. You know, mid '90s heyday kind of stuff. You know. Terminal Velocity with Charlie Sheen and Natasha Kinski? Maybe not, maybe not that. Okay. Maybe not that. 
You know what's not too bad, though? And I didn't see it until like two years ago. Drop Zone. Wesley Snipes. I have heard that Yandabont was originally going to make his debut with Drop Zone. Is that something? He actually was. And I did not mean to bring that up because of that. But yes, that's actually, he was, he was on that project before Speed. That's funny. <laughs> well, normally our resident film historian, Trip Von Weeks, would jump in right now, give us an in-depth historical analysis about the making and legacy of Speed. But like I said, he's not here. So in lieu of that, he just sent me an email and told me to read this plot synopsis instead. And Trip writes, a cop on a city transit bus must figure out how to defuse a bomb set to explode if the vehicle drops below 50 miles per hour. That's actually pretty good. Uh, sometimes I give you a hard time, Trip, but that, that really kind of covers the movie. Nice work. Um, I suppose I would add that it was Jan de Bont's directorial debut after being a first-rate cinematographer on movies like Die Hard, Black Rain, and Basic Instinct. It stars Keanu Reeves, Sandra Bullock, Dennis Hopper, Jeff Daniels, and Joe Morton. Um, the writer of Speed, Graham Yost, has said that there are premise-first movies and there are character-first movies, and that Speed is a premise-first movie. And that premise is obviously very simple. And in fact, it's so simple. If you were asked to give a 30-second elevator pitch for Speed, you'd probably have about 28 seconds left to kill after you finished your pitch. My question for you, Chris, is now you and I both love Speed, and we're obviously very smart for liking it as much as we do. But is Speed a smart movie or is Speed a dumb movie that's very well executed? Oh, my gosh. What a great question. Um, I'm, I'm thinking very hard about the question because I, I, don't, I, I don't like either answer. Um, you know, I, 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 I talked to a friend of mine, Justin Chang, Los Angeles Times film critic, and he, he said, uh, yes, Speed is mindless, but that's great because a mind would have just gotten in the way. and. On one hand, I agree with that. I mean, it's literally just a guy doing his job for two hours. That's what you're watching. I mean, uh, as far as storytelling, you know, as far as, you know, you don't learn anything about him. He doesn't learn anything. Uh, <laughs> nobody learns anything in this movie. Uh, I think Ebert called it, a, an. you know, we've seen this before. It's an ingenious wind-up machine, but we've never seen it done this well. So... To go back to the actual question, did you say, uh, were you asking me, do I think it's a dumb movie? Like, to put it, I want to hear it in your words one more time. This is how hard I think about this. Sure. Uh, is Speed a smart movie or is it a dumb movie that's very well executed? The dumb movie that's very well executed. Okay. Okay. Which makes it a smart movie. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I would say it's a, yeah, it's a very simple premise, but I would say it's, single-minded and not simple-minded. It has a single-minded desire to thrill the audience for two straight hours. And I would say it's actually kind of ingenious. I agree with Ebert. It's kind of ingenious in the way it goes about that. And I often liken it to Ridley Scott's Alien and how effectively it does exactly what it set out, sets out to do. And we'll talk about that more in a second. Um, but let's take a step back first. What is your history with speed? When did you first encounter it? So... I knew it was coming. I was looking forward to it. I wasn't a huge movie guy, like going to the movies every week. Like I was one movie in the theater a year until 1994, frankly. Um, and on the baseball field at practice, my friend Tommy said, Hey man, I saw this movie. It's called speed. Dennis Hopper gets his head knocked off at the end. Now, if somebody did that to you today, what would you do? You'd freak out. You spoiled it. It just made me want to see it. Like, so I hate spoil. I think spoiler culture is like, silly like people that, that get bent out of shape about spoilers now granted this is a big kind of spoiler but like i'm a kid and i'm like ooh, i gotta see that so anyway i saw it with my dad like i don't, I don't it wouldn't have been opening weekend or anything it was like 
maybe a week or two later. Um, I loved it. Uh, I, I couldn't wait for Dennis Hopper to get his head cut off. <laughs> But uh, I, I loved it. And then I think what really took it up a notch was you probably remember the HBO first look. Oh, yeah. That was a big one for me. Uh, that particular episode. I watched that show all the time. It was like kind of my version of, you know, they had Starlog and stuff in the 80s for people like learning about how things were done. And HBO first book was like a big thing for me. So anyway, I, I remember just seeing that and loving discovering uh Things like the fleet of buses they had to stand in for the bus and how they did different things and blah, blah, blah. And, and so it, so, so the, to, to really just put a point on answering the question, it's kind of the first movie that brought me into being interested in how movies were made. Wow. So it's now been 28 years, if you can believe it, since Speed has come out. Uh, in those 28 years, how many times do you think you've seen this movie? Oh, man. I mean, definitely triple digits. Triple digits. I figure, like, I figure it has to be. Wow. That's the multiple viewing a year movie for me. That could be an exaggeration. A lot, bro. A lot. Across various formats. Oh, yeah. I own the VHS. I own... Well, I saw it twice in theaters. I own the VHS. I own the DVD. And I now own the Blu-ray. So... Oh, uh, you got to get the 4K. I not only have the 4K, I have the, the standard issue 4K and the 4K Steelbook. I bought the movie twice on the same format. That's how insane I am. I have a Laserdisc, too. Oh, wow. I remember you wrote two really good articles in 2014 to coincide with Speed's 20th anniversary. One was a, an oral history by the bus passengers, and the other was with Keanu Reeves, Sandra Bullock, and Jan DeBont looking back on the film. And I don't want to sound too grandiose here, but I was weirdly moved reading those two articles. Speed was a very important film to me growing up, and it honestly felt like you were writing about a piece of my life. Um, but what's even more exciting is now, as I understand... You've got something even bigger potentially coming our way. You currently have a book proposal out to publishers all about speed. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your work on that and where things stand at the moment? Yeah. Yeah. You had asked me, you know, I heard you're writing a book and I, I think I told you it's more accurate to say I'm pursuing a book. So yeah, fingers crossed the proposals out there. Um, I spent a year, I spent 2021, uh, first of all, catching up with all those passengers, all the actors that play the passengers, because I kind of wanted fresh interviews that are my own, that I would, uh, I was just wondering if there was a book here. I didn't really know if there was. Uh, anyway, I, I, I went back to all of them, had fresh chats, and then I just kind of started poking around and reaching out to everybody else on the movie again, or everybody else on the movie. I, I went back to Jan DeBont and talked to him for multiple days um I, I got the producer mark gordon i got writer uh, graham yost i got tons of crew uh you know just all down the line um bunch more cast folks like i got I reached, you know because the first pieces that that first piece was just the passenger so i wasn't really reaching out to like jeff daniels joe morton Yada yada. So I talked to Joe Morton. i talked to glenn Plummer, who was the only person in the world that had a blast on speed too um, I talked to just tons of people just again, all th spent, spent the whole year gathering interviews and transcribing them and just really immersing myself and, and trying to find a, a narrative here and then kind of spent the latter part of the year or the, the, the early part of this year, um, crafting a proposal with an agent who represents oral histories, uh, a lot of the times. And so we're out there with this, uh, proposal and hopefully somebody will bite, um, there's obviously a lot more to it than that, but that's kind of the, the broad strokes. It's a 50-page 
summation of all my passion behind this movie and, and, you know, different narratives to be kind of dug into on it. And I, I wish there was more books like that, really. I mean, there's sort of, I've always heard that this book about network a few years ago kind of killed movie specific books because it just died. And, and I don't know if that's true. I mean, that could be like lore or something at this point, but just, I, I just wish there was more move, like singular movie specific books than there seem to be. And that, that are written by people obsessed with that movie. And it's not like it's a book full of a bunch of different stories about a bunch of different movies, just singular focus books. I just think it'd be fascinating. And in some way they do this in the podcast space now too, which is, is kind of my escape hatch because I've got all this material and just hours and hours and hours of interviews with all these people. So we'll see what happens. But uh, I think it's a, I think it's a movie deserving of it. I think it's a movie. My, my main focus, my main reason for wanting to even write a book was I believe it, belongs in the canon with die hard and uh you know just terminator 2 like the the movies of that era that no one bats an eye when you say that's your favorite action movie right but speed just seems like it's a bit of a stepchild and i don't think it deserves that i think that sounds great i think the world needs this book i'll buy it as soon as it comes out yeah uh, but but just as a tease to drum up even more interest on the DVD commentary track, the producer, Mark Gordon, and the writer, Graham Yost, they talk about how it came down to two directors, Jan DeBont, who got it, and then another director who they choose to let remain nameless, and they say this other director wanted to shoot the whole movie on a soundstage using blue screens. And so ultimately, they went with DeBont, which was the right choice. Now, don't tell me the name, but will you reveal the name of this director in your book? Yeah, I will. Um it's funny though. That's how they would make the movie today. Today's version of, of blue screens. It would be like led walls, and <laughs> right. a, bus, a, bu- a bus on a gimbal. And like, you know, that's how they would do it. But it, how can you get a freeway as a playground in the middle of urban Los Angeles? You know, uh, it just had a lot of playgrounds to play with, but, um, but yeah, yeah, I've got that name. Well, as far as I'm concerned, that's reason enough to publish this thing. Um, a little bit of my history with the movie. I saw it in theaters when it came out. That was the summer between my seventh and eighth grade year. There was that show on the E channel back then called coming attractions Mm -hmm. and they would show the trailer a lot leading up to my, to the end of my seventh grade school year. So I was pretty excited for it when it came out. I was actually on a family trip to Washington DC and I remember thinking to myself, I don't care about the Smithsonian. I just want to see speed. Um, But I had to wait until we got back to finally see it. My dad took me, and I vividly remember this, um, about an hour into the movie at one of the little lulls in the action, we both looked at each other, and my dad, with a big smile on his face, said, this is exciting. And I was in total agreement, of course. Uh, There were were three movies in the 90s in particular that that, uh, played a big role for me uh, in those formative movie-going years, and they just happened to come out in consecutive years. The first was Jurassic Park. The second was Speed. And the third was seven. And those those movies kind of set a bar for me. I kind of felt like if your movie's set pieces aren't as exciting as Jurassic Parks, or if your movie isn't as consistently thrilling as Speed, or if your climax isn't as gut-wrenching and intense as Sevens, then don't even waste my time. Um, what's remarkable about Speed, I think, is that it was also critically acclaimed, more so than those other two movies were at the time. Um, were you reading critics back then? Were you thinking of speed in terms of its Oscar potential that far back or did those interests come later? 
That all came later. No, like I said, I was coming off of, I can count on one hand the number of movies I had seen in a theater prior to Speed, actually. Um, I mean, and I'll do it right now for you. Masters of the Universe. The Land Before Time. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Curly Sue. And uh, Batman and Batman Returns. So I guess two hands. There were six movies that I had seen. And I didn't see anything in the theater in 93, by the way. I wanted to see Last Action Hero and Jurassic Park, but I didn't see them until VHS. I was a VHS, HBO kind of guy. Um, and so when Speed came out, 94 was the first year I saw multiple movies in the theater. I saw Speed. I also got really into Jim Carrey, so I saw all of his movies uh, that year. Those are the, the ones that come to mind. But, uh, yeah, so I wasn't thinking uh, – I just wasn't really in that mind frame. Um, and I, and I kind of still am not in a way uh, as far as critics go. Or I, I kind of came into that and then came out of it again. But that's a whole other separate conversation. But, no, I wasn't reading critics. Um wasn't reading really anything. It was stuff like I said, the HBO first look, you know, that's how it, that was kind of my window into movies beyond just, yeah, liked it. Didn't like it. You know, that was kind of the conversation around movies when you're a kid or when I was a kid, there wasn't really any deeper considerations being made. Yeah. I kind of had three critical influences in my life at that time. And I imagine they'll come up a lot on this show whenever a nineties movie gets discussed. Uh, but they were Siskel and Ebert, Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly, and Lawrence Topman, who was the critic for my local paper, the Charlotte Observer. And they all loved Speed. Siskel and Ebert gave it the rare, two very enthusiastic thumbs up. Gleiberman gave it an A. Lawrence Topman gave it three and a half out of four stars. And that was honestly very important for me at that time. I would not; It would not have been uncommon for me to like an action movie. I liked pretty much everything I saw back then. But knowing that they loved the same action movie that I did, that it wasn't just dismissed as being a dumb action movie or, or being about big explosions. That was very validating in a major way for me. It kind of empowered me as a, a soon-to-be 13-year-old that maybe maybe I was onto something in the way I was engaging with movies of the day. I mean, I still very much had bad taste, but I was figuring it out, and, and that felt pretty good. Um, in terms of Oscars, I, I remember in 94, that was the first year I sat down with a notebook and tried to come up with plausible nominations for films of that summer. Yeah. And I remember thinking, well, Speed had a shot at Best Picture because The Fugitive had been nominated for Best Picture the year before. And I figured Dennis Hopper had a shot at, of a supporting actor nomination because John Malkovich had been nominated for In the Line of Fire the year before. Uh, obviously, very, very wrong. Although Speed did get uh, a nomination for editing and I think a couple others for sound, maybe. Yep. Um, this may go nowhere, but I'll ask it anyway. There are two what-if scenarios that I often ponder in regards to 90s cinema. Obviously, neither one are provable, but they're fun to think about. Uh, one of them, I think, the answer is clear, in my mind at least. The other, which is the one I'll ask you, I'm not so sure about. Uh, the first one is about Titanic. What if Titanic had been finished in time for its original summer 97 release? And in that case... I genuinely don't think Titanic wins Best Picture in that scenario. Um, the other what if is this. Speed was originally supposed to come out in August of 94. Fox was so enthusiastic about the movie that they moved it up two months to June. But what if Speed did come out in August? I would like to think 
that the proof is still in the pudding, that it would have still been a hit, that critics would have still loved it, that we'd still be talking about it 28 years later on this podcast. But that means it also would have been coming out after a very busy summer movie season and even after another mad bomber movie There was Blown Away. But there was also The Shadow, True Lies, The Client, Clear and Present Danger. Not all strictly action, but action, suspense, spectacle. So does Speed still get the same reception it got when it had the jump on all these other movies? Probably not. But let me correct the record, too. Um, They were not so excited that they wanted to move the movie to June. Oh. Nobody was excited about this movie. Everybody thought they were making a B-movie that maybe they could make their money back on. and. Uh, it, it was a stupid premise to them. They they just uh, it, it it was like we'll make it for a for a price and and that's it. And that price eventually got inflated when uh, they kind of wanted some more post production money and they wouldn't put it into the movie until they got the reaction they did at test screenings. But June tenth was going to be True Lies. True Lies needed more time, so Fox had a hole. Speed was. Uh, playing well for test audiences and they kind of accelerated post-production to get it out there on June 10th. And obviously true lies came out, I think in, in July, right? Late July or was it August? July 15th. Yeah. Okay. So the, it, it needed more time. Um, so, so yeah, speed was, so I, so I think that's the thing. Speed was going to be August. True lies was going to be June. True lies got delayed. So they needed to bring, they needed to bring speed up. And it was playing well enough to test audiences that they were willing to put the money into uh, an accelerated post-production. But that I've got crazy stories from like the sound mixers and stuff. They had, they had three weeks to finish that movie sound wise, post-production sound. Like they had every stage in town going. It was like a whirlwind. I talked to uh, Greg Landeker, multiple Oscar winner, a brilliant guy. He, he won on Dunkirk and then retired. That guy's amazing. But he, he told me great stories about just the whirlwind of, getting that together the movie edited picture wise quickly uh john wright said the movie kind of just went to it 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 just melted together i mean like jan shot the hell out of it and he had plenty of stuff to choose from um so it just it was kind of like uh i don't want to say easy but you know he knew he knew what he had to do to make that that movie run but that's i just wanted to say that because uh it's it's an interesting note now if the movie comes out in august like it was originally planned for i don't know probably not i don't think when did that kind of officially get considered like a wasteland anyway where people aren't really going to the movies people are starting to go back to school toward the end of august and i think by that point that was basically conventional wisdom like that's you know the summer's winding down and we're done yeah yeah so and it's you know part of this was too like the global kind of hit of it all and i don't know that you've you're able to drum up that kind of uh, attention and, and reaction if, you, if you're later in the summer. So, uh, no, it doesn't. The answer is no. <laughs> it doesn't have the same acclaim. So it's it's fortunate that things happened the way it did. Yeah, my fear is that it would kind of have suffered from action or summer movie fatigue by that point. Uh, that can color our perceptions in ways we don't even understand. Um, but, you know, it did come out in June. It's a great movie. You could argue that movie that movie lit the summer box office on fire. Like that's a hell of a way to start the summer with a movie like that. And that people were stoked. I do remember just the vibe that summer was like like I said, it's the first year that I went to multiple movies at the theater. I mean, it was just there was something cool to see and people were excited to go to the theater. So, you know, a movie like Speed comes out and makes these two sweethearts into like instant stars and 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 it's such an exciting premise and i remember the commercials like yesterday i think we all do it's like 
you, know, you could argue speed kind of lit the fuse that summer. I think you're right. Um, what is it about the movie that kind of catapults it to being your favorite action movie? And what would you say to someone that kind of said, eh, it's just Die Hard on a bus? I'd say it's better than Die Hard. I'd start with that. I agree. That's probably controversial, but I agree. I would I would start with that. Uh, I, I, I don't know, man. I think it's ballsy. I just think it's brazen. And it, and it, it's the, again, I'm stealing this again from my buddy Chang, but it's the definition of firing on all cylinders. Like we're going to talk about what, what I guess if I had to cough up a weak link, what I think that is, but even that doesn't really, I, I, I like and find endearing in certain ways. The structure of the movie, it's just, it's such a unique beast. I mean, it's, it's basically three extended action set pieces and called a movie. Um, I, I really think that there's something to the chemistry between Keanu and Sandra. I think she's really legit fantastic in it. Um, I love that. And these were willful decisions. I love that the bus passengers aren't really like just background. Like they're kind of, you remember them, you know them like they're, they're not all of them, but like certainly featured ones. And, and even beyond that, you just, it was originally, they, they all thought they were going to be making lifeboat on a bus. And they, like they had more <laughs> to their characters, more backstories, which they did. And, and Joss Whedon nixed a lot of that with his big rewrite. But uh, it, it's just it's just unique. There's nothing else like it. That's why I like it. To say it's Die Hard on a Bus makes it sound like it's derivative. There's not a movie like Speed. There's not a movie like Speed. So that's where I'm at. Yeah. I mean, for the record, I love Die Hard. I, th- I love Die Hard. Yeah, who doesn't love Die Hard? Die Hard's great. Yeah. I, I, I do think Speed takes what works so well in Die Hard and makes it more aerodynamic, more streamlined. The other Die Hard retreads like Passenger 57 or Under Siege or even Cliffhanger. That's not the approach they took, and some are more effective than others. I, I, I like Under Siege and Cliffhanger. Um, I can certainly imagine a scenario, though, where this kind of approach doesn't pay off, but this is... Such an outstanding directorial debut by Jan de Bont. Never discount a hungry filmmaker who knows that this is their one shot and they're determined to show you everything they've got. And that's that's exactly what Jan de Bont does here. The way he modulates the action and varies the types of obstacles and close calls, both visually and also progressively in terms of the narrative, he, he's always raising the stakes. It never becomes grinding or relentless or purely mechanical. And honestly, watching it this time, I was reminded of Pauline Kael's review of the Sugarland Express, in which she sized up Steven Spielberg. And she wrote, quote, in terms of the pleasure that technical assurance gives an audience, this film is one of the most phenomenal debut films in the history of movies. If there is such a thing as a movie sense, and I think there is, I know fruit vendors and cab drivers who have it and some critics who don't, Spielberg really has it, end quote. And I think that's... I can't think of a better way to describe what's going on here. With speed anyway, Jan de Bont has such a pure movie sense. There's such a confidence in how it moves and cuts and how all the individual pieces work together. Like you can look at John McTiernan's debut film, Nomads, and there's nothing in Nomads that suggests he'd be at all capable of Die Hard only two years later. Conversely, I suppose there are several Jan de Bont movies made after speed where you might think, how did the same guy who made this also makes speed. And that brings me to my next question. What do you think of speed Two cruise control? <laughs> that came out of nowhere. Um, it's terrible. It's, uh, there's not a single thing good about it. It's one of the worst movies ever made. Yeah. I honestly can't think of a steeper drop off in quality 
between an original film and its sequel. And I, I guess it's safe to assume you're not going to write a follow-up book about Speed 2? No, but there'll be a chapter in my book. I can't leave that hanging. Sure. Um, I mean, there's a lot of acrimony there that's interesting. Uh, everybody was basically disinvited from the sequel. I mean, Jan, that was going to be Jan's movie. He was going to get all the credit, for better or worse. And, you know, you look at the movie, it's like it's a blue tulip production. Like, it's it's all him. All him. And, you know, like I said, the one guy that had that has good stories to tell is Glenn Plummer because he got there early and they were out there shooting on the boat the whole time. But, you know, his stuff's in the third act. So he was just sunning and funning at that resort from like October until like whenever they got they finished in February. So they didn't film his stuff until the end. So he was just sitting there waiting on waiting on everybody. I mean, there's, you know, when's the last time you saw it? That lifeboat sequence? My God. It's it's interminable. I I talked to Mark Mancina about that because he he did come back and he scored it and and he did, he's like yeah they did, I did my best but he he was like Jan you got eleven minutes of people getting on lifeboats here I do not he's like you got to make it more more exciting he's like I don't know what I can do <laughs> and it's just bad it's just bad man Jason Patrick is terrible Joe Morton hated it so much he was like take my name off of this not after the fact actually he read the script and was like I'll do it but I don't want to be credited. He'll take the paycheck, but he was like, I don't want my name on it. And he's not credited. Wow. I mean, it's kind of crazy. It's bad. Bad movie. Yeah. Okay. Enough about Speed 2. Let's get to it. Yeah. What's the worst part of Speed, your favorite action movie? The fact that it has a sequel named Speed 2 that's terrible. No. Uh, If I had to land on something, I guess the third act is the weakest link. um, Because, I mean, you know, Tarantino says once they're off the bus, the movie's over. And it really kind of is. I love that third act though. Um, but it's, it is kind of like they didn't have another idea. So it's just like, let's just keep going. And, uh, whether that works or not is up for debate. Maybe, um, maybe it brings the movie into kind of like a, a softer landing than it needed. Um, but like I said, I don't know how much you want me to dump on that aspect, but I, I, I certainly would say that's that's the worst part, quote unquote, of the movie is this third act that kind of it's not as interesting to the whole as the first act is to the whole. You know what I mean? Like the, that's what I was talking about. How the structure is fascinating. It's these three set pieces. There's the elevator sequence in the first act, the speed section in the middle. I mean, the bus section in the middle, and the uh, subway section at the end. And the first act is more interesting to the whole than the third act is. And so if that's some great sin, I would say that is the, uh, the worst part. Yeah. It's funny. I mentioned to a few people that we'd be talking about speed and without fail, their exact words were, well, obviously the worst part is the third act. <laughs> um, on the commentary track, even the writer and producer takes shots at it. Graham Yost agrees with Tarantino. He says the movie is over as soon as Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock slide out from underneath the bus. Um, but I will defend a great deal of the third act. Um, I will say, yeah, my least favorite things about the movie are all contained in the third act, and I'll get to those in a minute. But I do like that they're skillfully able to move the action off the bus and onto a, a third kind of mundane, every everyday conveyance. We start in an elevator, we move to a bus, and now we're on a subway. I like the continuity there. Um, so conceptually, I do like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the great things about the movie. It kind of takes these banal settings and otherwise minor inconveniences and turns them into death traps. You know, a sharp left turn 
is not an occasion for excitement in normal life, and yet it's very exciting in speed. Um, I don't think the shooting, the directing, the editing, anything like that suffers in the third act. Um, and I especially like how the third act kind of reorients the action so that the stakes are now more personal for Jack and Annie. I can't think of any other action movie um, where the climax involves the two leads sitting down and tenderly holding each other as their lives hang in the balance. So I give it a lot of points for those things. Um, before I get to my worst part, let me run a quote by you because I want to get your reaction to it. Um, earlier in the commentary track, Graham Yost, um, and it doesn't sound like he's being purely self-deprecating. Um, he claims that the characters in the movie are one-dimensional at best. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, he's right. I mean, it's like I said, you don't learn anything about them. You don't, they don't learn anything. So we don't, we don't witness any of the, you know, screenwriting 101 on display. Uh, and I think that's fine. There is a point where things rep- are sort of archetypical or archetypal, I guess is the word. And so, uh, you don't need traditional storytelling. There is a spark between those two characters too. And it's like, yeah, he's kind of wooden compared to her, but like, that's also interesting because she's so completely not. And so it's like that, that creates something dynamic. Uh, So it's kind of like you just watch these kind of things happening on a screen as opposed to investing yourself in character. And I know that's like anathema to, to say that's like a, you know, something you don't want to do, but like, again, I go back to that thing that Justin said, a mind would have gotten in the way. Is it a better movie if you know something about these characters? I don't know. If Is it a better movie if if all these backstories of the people on the bus are somehow, somehow survived those early drafts? I doubt it. That's not really the movie you're telling um, or the movie you're, you're making. And I, and then just speaking of Graham and what you were, we were saying earlier, uh, you know, Graham's dad, El, El Yost, he, he, he uh, hosted a show. It, it was like a Canadian kind of, here's what's going on at the movies show. And this is, he, he, he basically, my point is he developed his love of movies from his dad. And it was concepts were, were so appealing to the two of them, and especially his dad. And particularly, he loved Runaway Train, which was the whole reason Speed exists, is uh, it, was, it was something where it was purely... And that's a Kurosawa script. It's purely the driving action of what's happening in the movie that makes it interesting. Not who's in the movie, you know, not who the characters are or what their stories are necessarily. And, and so, you know, Graham took that and was like, well, what if it was a a bus and what if it couldn't slow down because it would blow up? Like he kind of added all the, all the window dressing to it, but uh, there's something, there's something still to be said for that. There's not enough of it today to me, these kinds of movies that are like, again, like Ebert called it, ingenious wind-up machine. I, I, I mean, I'm a nostalgic person, but like, I, 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 that, I think that's why Top Gun Maverick makes $700 million, you know, is, is because people were craving the kind of movies that we got every three weeks 30 years ago, you know? So anyway, it's a long answer to your question. No, it's a great answer. Um, it's not that I, I don't disagree with Gramios that they're one-dimensional. And I don't want to overstate this because I wouldn't necessarily teach speed in a screenwriting class or anything. But I, I do think there's something going on in the alchemy of the writing, casting, and directing that kind of makes up for the fact that they're one-dimensional because the relationships here really matter. It's about as relationship-forward as a perpetual motion machine can be. Um, 
And that's certainly true for the major relationships like Jack and Aunt, Annie, Jack and Harry, played by Jeff Daniels, Jack and Mac, played by Joe Morton. Um, but I also kind of see it in these little moments with some of the peripheral, peripheral characters where within seconds, we kind of know everything we need to know about them and their relationship to the other characters. A relationship is effectively suggested and, and established, and they leave a lasting impression on that moment, like you were saying, the passengers on the bus, that really benefits the movie. And, and to me, one of the best examples of this is the character of Bob, the bus driver, played by John Capadich, mm-hmm. um, who has less than a minute of screen time before he just gets blown up. But there's such efficient and effective relationship building between his character and Keanu Reeves' character. Hey, Jack. So you got TV. Congratulations. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, you look fat. <laughs> Be easy on him, Bob. The boy was up late last night partying. Oh, a wild party, huh? Yeah, well, I don't remember that well. Kind of been too great. Woke up alone. Yeah? Well, you know, the last time I partied like that, I woke up married, huh, Vinny? There's something endearing between the two of them. Um, so he's just not an anonymous victim. And and it, actually, this is weird, but it actually reminded me of something Kenneth Lonergan said on the You Can Count On Me commentary track. That movie opens with the immediate death of two parents. And they have this two-sentence exchange right before they die. They're talking about young girls and braces. Um and it's just because Lonergan thought it would be nice to get to know these two people in a somewhat likable way before he had to kill them off. And in Speed, those little things add up. For, for the most part, the deaths in Speed really sting because of that fact. And, and that ties into part of my defense of the third act and the way you know, it kind of accumulates into something more personal. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I would say the single worst thing in the third act is if I just had to pick one, is Jack's quip right after Howard Payne is beheaded on top of the subway. Payne is kind of strangling Jack and taunting him by saying, I'm smarter than you, I'm smarter than you. Jack pushes him up, his head gets knocked off, and then Jack retorts, yeah, but I'm taller. To me, that's just kind of incredibly lame send offline. Um, That's probably the thing that makes me cringe the most. You're out of your mind. In the movie. (laughs) Uh, It would not have been out of character for Jack to just... Out of your mind. ...fall back and catch his breath after that moment. Plus, I think there's a better, not necessarily great, but but better line that follows it when Annie asks uh, where Payne is, and Jack replies, he lost his head. I think this one's the worst one. You think that? Okay, well, that's my next question. What do you think? If, if, if you had to keep just one of those lines, which do you go with? I'm taller. Everybody claps. Like, are you kidding? He lost his head is like gilding the lily. Only because it comes after. To me, to me and this may be apocryphal, I don't remember necessarily my my reaction as a 12 year old kid watching speed but I, I may be retroactively applying this but i feel like even in that moment i was like yeah not the greatest send-off line i i, I love it <laughs> i'm taller it's the way he says it too it's like uh such a punk way to say it <laughs> i'm taller <laughs> i think there's such great foils I, I always make this note of like you know keanu's this guy who's like seen as you know especially at the time as a quote bad actor or whatever and and he here he's sharing the screen with a guy who was on screen with James Dean, you know, like this is this is uh, the method in front of him, and uh, it's just it makes him such an interesting foil for uh, for Jack Trevin. Yeah, I actually think this is uh, Keanu Reeves' best performance, and it's more than just that he's well used. I, I think that he's more commanding, more authoritative here than he's ever been before or since. I, I prefer him in this. Um, 
his other action movies like Point Break or, or The Matrix or the John Wick movies. I think he's genuinely good here. And he even like has tender moments and moments of emotion that really play. Um, how do you feel about Keanu Reeves in this? I think he's great. I, th- I think it's because he's, it's a very reactive performance. Uh-huh. And given that he's playing a cop, that's perfect. Uh, he's, he's, he's very good at just, you know, I always think of this thing that it's funny. I never talk about, Hey, there's this thing on a commentary track, but you keep bringing up commentary tracks. And so now I'm thinking of one Oliver Stone and JFK said something about how Kevin Costner is one of the best quote listening actors as in when he's in the scene with X and he's hearing the whole story from Donald Sutherland, just acting like you're listening to somebody and taking it in is 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 not i don't know if it's difficult but it's just something you don't really think about and it's and it's just always struck me that oliver stone said said that kevin costner is one of the great listening actors uh watching him listen to something on screen so anyway i bring that to keanu because it's like watching him just taking the information as a cop uh is something interesting about it there's something because i i always say that the movie is uh the movie is the essence of the movie is in the most famous line from the movie pop quiz hotshot. It's about thinking on your toes, you know, stay on or get off, get off, like turn here, get off, get off this. What here? Yeah, right here. Turn it, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's about, it's about being reactive and he's very good at that in the movie. He's very good at just being the, that character, a cop making split second hair raising decisions. And, uh, and I've always just thought that that was interesting that the essence really kind of is in that line, pop quiz, hot shot. Yeah. Um, let me get your take on this. Um, you mentioned that the third act was was less compelling than the first two, and I certainly agree. But to me, there's, there's something lazy about the third act, and mm-hmm. then they just repeat an obstacle, and the solution to the obstacle is exactly the same uh, as what occurred earlier uh, in the movie. They, they find out that the freeway isn't finished, and they have to jump a 50-foot gap. That sequence is thrilling. Mm-hmm. Uh, they floor it, and they make the jump. Here they find out that's, that the subway line isn't finished. Uh, so what do they do? They floor it again and hope for the best. Uh, to me, that would be like John McClane and Die Hard taping a handgun to his back twice to kill the bad guys in multiple sequences. And what makes it so disappointing in speed for me is that they had done such a great job leading up to this moment of varying the action and coming up with new ways to raise the stakes. And then they just repeat a gag. Uh, it is over very quickly, and there is that tender moment that I like so much, so it doesn't bum me out too much. Um, but how do you kind of feel about the repetition of that idea? In in a vacuum, I dislike it, but I also happen to know that it was cobbled together. Um, I can tell you something now. Uh, this is from Jorge Saralegui, who was the Fox executive uh, on the movie. I think this ca- this came from me just asking him about was anything missing in the test screening? Like what kind of, what were there shots that were missing in the test screenings and stuff? Like what, it, what, it, what did it look like when they got it in front of audiences for the first time? And he said that the third act was probably in shambles for a bit. And he, he said, and we were talking about that moment when he's like, you know, there's a turn in the track up ahead. I'm going to speed it up. Like it's such a weird thing. And he says, uh, I'm not actually sure if we reshot something but now that I'm thinking about it, what we did do is we changed the story. This is one of those examples where we used existing footage and made up a moment where Keanu says, I'm going to speed it up. Take a look at that scene. I'm almost positive you hear the line. He says, not on his face, meaning it's off camera. 
uh, and look at his face and tell me if you're driving that train and it's going however many miles an hour and you're about to crash that you would look as relaxed as he does. So what he seemed to recall was they had just like before, it's like a shot before a take. Let me actually use his words. He says, it's a non-take. Take a look at his eyes. It's a non-take. It's a fast cut, but that's after the cut. It's in between the takes. He's standing there. That's old footage that we repurposed. It's kind of like the, you're not, you're not really doing the scene yet, but you're on camera and being recorded. And you do, when you look at that shot, he is kind of not there. He's not really like paying attention in a focused way. Uh, you can see that it's kind of like they're about to lock in and do a scene. And then when he says, I'm going to speed it up, that's off camera. Like, so it seems to me that they were just cobbling together a scene. They were trying to have a story beat there and that's what they came up with. And then it leads to the derailment scenario. So that's incredible. Publishers, put this book out already. Like, this is great <laughs> stuff. This is exactly why I wanted to have Chris on the podcast. Um, before we move on, is there anything you want to say about speed that you haven't already said? The, the, the thing that's interesting to me is the, the New Yorker review. Have you ever read Anthony Lane's review? Uh, I, the closest I've gotten, they talk about it on the commentary track, and it sounds like a very exciting piece of writing. Well, what they always say is he called it the movie of the year, which he did. But I think that the opening of that review is the greatest opening to a review ever. Speed is set in Los Angeles. Most of it takes place on a bus. It is a film full of explosions, but bare of emotional development. Its characters are no more than sketches. It addresses no social concerns. It is morally inert. It's the movie of the year. I wish we could say that about more movies today. That's what I want to say about Speed. All right, you know what that sound means. It's time to step into the Pop Quiz Hotshot Time Machine, formerly known as the Worst Part Podcast Time Machine. I'm setting the coordinates for my hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina. The date, Friday, June 10th, 1994, which is when Speed opened. Chris, you're going to the Matthews Festival 10 Cinema, the very theater where I saw Speed all those years ago. But when you get to the box office, you're told that, unfortunately, Speed is sold out. So now you have to choose to see another title that's playing at the theater. And your options on that day are The Flintstones, Maverick, Renaissance Man, showing in a THX theater, by the way, <laughs> Crooklyn, The Inkwell, The Crow, Three Ninjas Kickback, and for some strange reason, Jurassic Park, which was still popping up at various theaters in Charlotte in the weeks before and after this. So with those choices before you, what do you do? What do you do? My instinct, actually, and it's because I've never seen it, and it's a, it's a blind spot that I've never just uh, – I should probably change uh, – is Crooklyn. But if it's me, then it, I'm, going, I'm probably going to The Crow. But with the benefit of hindsight and where I'm at now in my life – if you said it was a time machine, so I'm stepping into a time machine. I go back. Here I am. I haven't seen Crooklyn yet. I'll go see Crooklyn. Yeah, definitely. You should. You should definitely check out Crooklyn. You're a big Spike Lee fan, right? I am. That's just one. For some reason, I, I never. I never saw that one. I don't know if I'm a big Spike Lee fan. Probably the most uneven director there is. But like, <laughs> I do. I do love his voice, and uh, the, the highs are very high for me when it comes to Spike. So sure. And I've, I've heard that one's really good. Like some people consider it one of his, definitely one of his best. So I would probably see that. It's, I think probably his most autobiographical. It's, it's about him and his, uh, in the seventies growing up and his parents' relationship. Uh, some really interesting formal touches in it. Um, so yeah, that's a good choice. The Crooklyn, go see that. I think that's why I've never seen it too, is because I was just like never interested in seeing Spike's like, you know, memoir movie. 
but God help you if you don't want to see a memoir movie today. <laughs> right. That's all, that's all there is. Yeah. All right. So there you have it. Thank you for being on the show, Chris. Do you have anything coming up uh, that you want us to know about? Oh, I'm just uh, wrapping up the year here. Hopefully, hopefully I'll have some good news on that book. But if not, maybe you'll see it as a podcast down the line. Who knows? All right. Well, publishers, get on it. Listeners, go buy that book. If and when it comes out, fingers crossed there. Everyone can follow us on Twitter. We are at Worst Part Pod. Our theme song was written by my brother, Jason Foster. That's our show for today. On behalf of my co-host, Trip Bon Weeks, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.